Well, I'm very happy to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Revelation 17, verses 14 through 18. Revelation chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. I have good news this morning, two points of good news. Could you use good news today? Could you use good news because of your life? Could you use good news because of our time in the book of Revelation so far? I think we all could use some good news. Well, I have good news this morning, and I'm delighted to be sharing it with you as we set our hearts and minds in this text on the future overwhelming victory of the Lamb who is Jesus Christ. In these verses, we're going to see this beautiful picture of Jesus' power and control and victory, and ultimately what we hope for uh, in the future. We also, as we continue to work our way through the book of Revelation and through any book of the Bible, we of course want these heavenly realities, these future realities, to have an impact on our lives today. And that's our continued prayer as pastors, and I hope your prayer as uh, together with us, our congregation, that God would use his word to change us today, not just to answer questions about what may come or, or to satisfy some speculations that we have, but that this would make a difference in our lives today. And that's our prayer this morning as we think about the Lamb's overwhelming victory. You know, I am, like maybe some or maybe even many of you, a lifetime gamer from the very earliest days that I can remember, from the earliest Atari, which was just a joystick and a button, down to the uh, PlayStation 1, Game Boy, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, now PlayStation 4. I've always been a gamer. I've loved mostly games that were more true to life, realistic, so I don't exactly fit into the fantasy crowd that I know is somewhat represented here, but I still think it's, it's fascinating and wonderful. I have uh, more so played games, sports games, Madden, 2K, NBA Live, uh, other role-playing games. In fact, Josiah and I have a, a very mismanaged uh, um, uh, franchise with the Orlando Magic going on right now. We're trying to get things under control within our roster, our contracts, and, and uh, salary cap is, is way out of control, but we're working on it. I've always loved and I still to this day love to play video games. And as I said, I have loved to play uh, role-playing games that are sort of true to life. They're realistic. I have liked uh, playing games like The Sims, where you're sort of in the real world, sort of, and, and, and working out life in the real world. One of the things, though, that I have noticed in all of this time of, of playing, in particular, those kinds of realistic games, is how much they seem to compare to my real life. I noticed this recently as we were on a walk somewhere, and there were a lot of other people walking. And I have uh, had this experience playing some of these games in a, quote, real world where you're walking down the sidewalk and someone else is walking past you and you hear them. They may be talking to someone walking with them or they're talking on the telephone and you hear just a little bit of their conversation as they go by. And then here we are in the real world, walking down the sidewalk, and people are passing us, and it's the same kind of thing. And you know what I said one day when we had this experience? I said, notice that. That is just like the game. Hearing people go by and hear that little bit of their conversation is just like how when I'm walking down that imaginary sidewalk, I hear a little bit of their conversation. Well, occasionally, life does remind me of the game. That's just like the game. But even in that experience or in that experience, notice this, there are two realities. 
If you've had something like this happen to you, notice and see them because they are important to your daily life. There are two realities. One is true and real. The other is derived. One is the ultimate reality. The other is the reality that you are interpreting. Now, here's the question. Which one is like the other? Is the real life experience on the sidewalk like the game? Hear what that means. That means that the ultimate reality, the one by which I interpret life, is the game. Or is the game like your life? This is a daily reality and struggle for every single one of us. Because we all have, when it comes to the word of God and our understanding of life, two ways to look at life. You can either interpret your life according to the true word of God, the ultimate reality. You can look through the word of God to understand your life. Or, as many of us do, because we are fallen and because we are in many times in our lives foolish, we can look through the lens of daily life to make sense of God and what he says. We can look through what we're going through and say, because I'm going through this, because I'm facing this temptation, this trial, this trouble, then God must be like this. But you see, that's backwards, isn't it? When put that way, we know that it's backwards. But this is the practice that we need. This is the change that we need. We need to shift from looking at God through our lives to looking at our lives through God and his word, through his gospel. We need his ultimate reality to define for us how we will see life today. Because if you get that backward, it will skew everything about the way you see the world. It will skew everything about the way that you see God. And it will make an enormous difference in your life one way or the other, either for good or for bad. Well, today we are going to continue looking through the lens, as we have been recently, of God's ultimate victory at the end of time so that we might better understand how we could be living our lives in this time, in these days. We begin with this first truth of good news, and it is that Jesus will win the war. Let's begin with just verse 14. Here we have pictured for us in these verses this morning, Armageddon, when the beast and his kingdom attack the lamb. But unknowingly, it seems, they attack the lamb who is also a lion. And it proves to be no context. Now remember, if we want to understand our Bibles well, if we want to be good readers of the Bible, good studiers of the Bible, good preachers of the Bible, good listeners of the Bible, we should interview the Bible. We want to ask the Bible questions at every turn about every word. That's what we're doing on Sunday mornings. I hope that's what you're doing in your personal devotion time every day when you open God's word. I hope that's what's happening when we share the Bible over lunch or coffee or in community group, that we are looking through the Bible as the interpretive lens of how we will see life. Let's interview this passage in verse 14. It says, these will wage war against the lamb. I want you to notice that first. Look at that word lamb. It may seem very kind of routine to us because you've heard about Jesus being the the lamb of the world. 
the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb of God. But notice what a lamb is. This is a word for a little lamb. This is for a small creature. This vision that John is receiving is setting up for us this incredible reality and picture of what this ultimate battle is like in Armageddon. And it starts off by saying that they waged war against the little lamb, this small creature. When put that way, what do you expect is going to happen? All of these mounting powers against one little lamb, surely those powers are going to win. But notice what we see next. The lamb will overcome them. Because he is not only the lamb, he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. Notice what they wage. They wage a war. What is a war? A war is an incredible fight to the death. This text reminds us again of what's coming upon the world, an ultimate fight between the world and the king of the world, between the world and the lamb of God, between the world and the Lord of lords. But he will overcome. That's exactly what it says. The lamb will overcome them. To overcome, good interviewing, what does that word mean? It means to carry off the victory. It's a word that's also used throughout Scripture to reference ours as Christians holding to the truth. Jesus will win the war. This is a truth that can seem so far away from us. Out in the future, it certainly doesn't feel like that in my daily life. Is Jesus winning the war? I have all of these pressures on every side, but he will win the war. I think it's important for us to take a step back looking at this text to see the sheer magnitude of size and power in this war. We have to understand what kind of war he is winning if we want to gain those kinds of helpful, emboldening, courage-making, heart-gladdening resources in our daily lives. What we see here, look at verses 15 through 18, is, is a kind of recap or rephrasing of what happened in the passage just before, verses 7 through 13. As there are some difficult verses there that try to unpack for us exactly what is happening in the vision and what it means, we have another version of it in verses 15 through 18. It gives us a picture of what this war is like. How has it happened? How does it fit in with the rest of Revelation? Look at verse 15. It says, He said to me, The waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Remember that the prostitute, Babylon, is a way of, of, of personifying the ultimate unbelief of the world. The kind of false promises that have been made by the beast and the dragon to the world to, to bring them into control, to, to deceive them into believing that, that ultimate hope is found in them and not in the one true God. And therefore, the prostitute sits on the waters, which are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. So you're seeing a, a worldwide kind of collection of power coming together under this prostitute, under Babylon, under ultimate unbelief. Verse 16, and the ten horns or the kings that are in, envisioned in the vision, which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the prostitute and will make her desolate and naked. 
and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. This is graphic language. That what I think it means is it's a way of picturing what the beast and the dragon will do to bring together all the power that they can to launch an assault against the true God. While the whole world was believing the lies and coming in together with them and giving all of their attention and all of their resources, thinking that they would be cared for in the end, in the end, that kind of unbelief will never, will never satisfy. It will never care for them. In fact, the picture that's given here is as though the beast has come in and has turned against them has actually turned against the world and not fulfilled the promises, but rather taken all of those resources that are envisioned in this text and pulled them together to launch this assault against the true God. Verse 17, though, we are, we are comforted to know how this happened. Why has this happened? It seems like something that would be so out of control. In fact, some that may not know their Bibles as well or may not know Jesus as well may read this and you would think, uh-oh, Jesus is really in for a hard fight because all of these powers are coming together. But then we're reminded of who is actually in control. Verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. This is another one of those amazing passages in Scripture that remind us of just how in control God is of everything in the world. Even those things that would confuse us about why they are in the world. Why is the world this way? Why why do evil things continue to happen? Why do the wicked continue to prosper? Does God have a plan? Is he really in control? We're reminded here again that he works in mysterious ways. That behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That behind it all, he is working. And he is working perfectly, never worrying, never anxious, never afraid, but rather orchestrating all things, even until this very last moment, to bring together the unbelief of the world into one final battle in which he will extinguish it forevermore. Verse 18 will remind of the woman which you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Here we have this great battle coming together. You're hearing about powers uniting and swelling and all being directed, laser focused at the lamb as though they could defeat him. Imagine it this way. It's as though all of the powers of every nuclear weapon in the world could all be trained onto one person and fired simultaneously at him who is Christ. This is an epic battle. And that's what makes it all the more marvelous, all the more comforting, all the more courage building, all the more heart gladdening to know that Jesus will win. And he will do it effortlessly. Now, give a dated reference here. Some of you will recognize this. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you may remember those early Superman movies. Those were the best movies of Superman. Christopher Reeve, best Superman of all time. Superman 2. Do you remember what happened when General Zod and two of the the Kryptonian villains were were put away in in this kind of phantom zone and put in prison? And then Superman kind of unwittingly released them into the world and they're wreaking havoc in the world. 
And then at one point, because they have been able to amass their powers together and unite, these three villains fight him all at the same time. And you watch this incredible battle play out, and it's a wrestling back and forth. And at one moment, it looks like General Zod and his crew will win. At another minute, it looks like Superman will win. But in the end, of course, because it always works out in the end, Superman gets the victory. That's one of those images, for whatever reason, comes into my mind when I think about anyone amassing powers against the true king of the universe. But here's the big difference. In order to keep you interested in what's happening on the silver screen, the plot must have that back and forth. It has to draw some question of, will he win? Will he get the victory? He's really at a disadvantage. Oh, he's crushing Superman's hand. Oh, he has some secret in his pocket that Superman didn't know about. And out comes the kryptonite. And now he's powerless. What's going to happen? Tune in next week. And then you'll find out that's the way all of the comics work. Because that's what's interesting. But Jesus is not interested in being interesting. He does not wrestle. He does not wrestle back and forth. Maybe he wins, maybe he doesn't, even when he's faced with all of this power. Why? Because he wants to put on display not some interesting plot of the, uh, that will keep your interest, but he's putting on display who he really is. And we read it there in verse 14. He is Lord of lords and king of kings. Again, back to our good interviewing. What in the world does this mean? It seems so obvious to us, and in one sense it is because we've heard it over and over again. But you probably, like me, need this refresher. We need the continual repeating refrain of truth from the word of God, mainly about who is this Jesus Christ? Who is this one that we have placed our trust in? What is he like and why should we trust him? And you see it here again, because he is Lord of Lords. Here's that word Lord. It means possessor. It means that he owns everything. It means that he has in his control all that there is, but he's not only Lord, he is also King that's a word that means ruler. So put those two together. He is the, the ruling possessor of all things. You cannot get any more kingly than that. No one can compare to him because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. That's why in your Bible and mine, we see the, the difference in the uppercase and lowercase letters. He is uppercase king of lowercase kings. He is uppercase Lord of lowercase lords. There is no one like him. Even then, some of that language doesn't always come through. So, so we should be free to make that comparison of who he is to the people of our world, those that might be more familiar to us. How would you put it? Think for a moment. He is president of presidents, chief of chiefs, Prince of princes. You can go on and on. Principle of principles. Boss of bosses. He trumps everyone. And he does it effortlessly. He does it because his value is unmatched. His value is, is independent of anyone else. He needs no one to ascribe to him glory in order to be glorious. He needs no one to give him value in order to have value. 
He is who he is. He is the great I am. If you've been watching baseball recently, the World Series just ended last night. And it's always so amazing to see people in the stands clamor after a home run ball or even a a foul ball into the stands. Or every now and then when one of the players picks ones up at the the turn of the inning and they can't keep using it, once it hits the dirt, it's got to be put away. They toss it over in the crowd. Even that ball, just the ball, the changing of the inning is tossed into the crowd and everybody wants to have it. It's just a baseball. But then years later, that baseball will be sold for Ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, maybe a million dollars if it's ascribed that much value. How does it get that value? It's just a baseball. It gets that value because everyone comes together and decides that's the valuable baseball. You see, God's value has nothing to do with that. If the whole world pointed at God and said, You are not valuable, he still would be. If the whole world pointed at God and said, You are not glorious, he still would be. If the whole world said, you are not worthy of worship, you are not in control, you are not great, you are not exalted, you are not gracious, you are not merciful, and that's what the whole world does, it doesn't change a thing. Because his victory and his value is wrapped up in himself. And that, my friends, is good news. Because that means that he's the kind of God who can serve and love and save and forgive even his enemies. He doesn't need me to ascribe glory to him in order to take me as his own. He doesn't need me to to receive him in order to work in my life. He cares for me. He will pull me in. He has control. That's a freeing reality because he's the kind of God then that we can trust. And that's why Jesus will win the war. But here's the key truth for us to remember. If we want to pull this reality into our present life, there is no match for the lamb. He has no match This reminds me of some of those cliches that my dad would always say when I was young. He had a a handful of them that came out over and over and over again. Anytime I said that we needed to do something, maybe it was we need to take out the trash, he would say, you got a mouse in your pocket? That was one of those cliches. Or if I ever called him boy, he would say, see a boy, give him a dollar. Or if I ever heard someone ask him for a match, he would always say, not since Superman died. It's those cliches, this one that is true of him. There is no match for Jesus Christ. There is no one like him. Listen to Jeremiah 10, verses 6 and 7. There is none like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For it is your duel. For among all the wise men of the nations, all and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. This is the truth, a truth that we need more of in our church and in our lives. And therefore, when we hear this truth, we ought to strive together to give God all the due that we possibly can. 
Because this is the truth that's so difficult to settle into our lives. It's one of those reasons why we struggle so much in the Christian life is because our God is not big enough. He's not as big in our daily lives as he actually is in reality. Perhaps it's because we have been looking through the lens of our lives to try to interpret him rather than looking through him to interpret our lives. Does that make sense? If we do that, he will, he will appear skewed. He will not appear as he really is. And then it stirs up all of these troubles inside of us, all of these problems that we have in our lives. And much of them can be addressed. We can be helped in great ways if we would focus on giving him his due in every way that we can. That means to exalt him as he should be exalted in every way that we can. That we would trust him and depend upon him in every way that we possibly can. And that we would make that one of our ultimate pursuits. And we can do that because of the second truth of good news. That Jesus will preserve his people when he wins the victory. Even in the midst of this world that is turned against him and increasingly so. Even down to this very, one of these last scenes that we're seeing that he will preserve his people. It's good news that Jesus will win the war, but only if you're going to be there with him. If you're his enemy, if you're not included in his plan, if you don't belong to him on that day, then the fact that Jesus wins the war is not good news. But for those who know him, it is good news because he will preserve us. Look here at the end of verse 14 and see again one of these beautiful places that we, we noted last Sunday. It's a place where you and I show up in the text. We are with him. Those who are with him in this final battle, in this ultimate victory, we are with him. But again, back to our good interviewing, who are we? Why are we with him? How are we with him? Well, the text tells us because it describes those who are with him that we know to be us, those who have faith in Christ and look forward to his coming and his ultimate kingdom reigning forever are, notice these three key words, are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Is that the way that you think about yourself? Is that what you think when you look in the mirror well, I hope that's what you think when you look in the mirror of God's word because that's what God's word says about you. That's what God's word says about us, that we are called and chosen and faithful. We are called. This is the kind of thing at this time that would involve calling someone to a banquet. That's the word, to be called to a banquet. That's how we have come to Christ. How have you become a Christian? You have become a Christian because God has called you. He called out your name into your heart and he changed you and he welcomed you to his banquet. It goes on, it says, not only are we called, but we are chosen. This is the, the original word, eclectos. It means to be picked out. That those who are with him have been called by him, but not only called, they have been picked out. He's guaranteed that they will come. Of course, you can go out into the playground if you have children and you can call out to them all day long. But if they're not listening, they won't come. If they're not obedient, they won't respond. 
But here, God doesn't leave it up to that. He doesn't just call out into the world and hope that his children come. What does he do? He picks them out. This is a reality that we have to get our hearts around. That if you are in Christ, you are so because he called you and he plucked you out of the world. He reached down by grace and mercy and love and pulled you into himself. And that's why you are called this last thing, faithful. Faithful is a a persuaded trust. You have been given a persuaded trust in him because of what he has given for you, done for you. This is our ultimate identity. But it doesn't always seem that way, does it? Why are we reiterating these truths all the time? Because they need to be reiterated all the time. It doesn't seem that way, does it? Okay, here, here's a hard truth. This is a hard one for us to accept, especially as Christians who have a high bar in our church of what it means to follow Christ. This is a hard truth. Look around at anyone that you can see to your right or to your left, in front of you or behind you. Look around. Every single person that you're looking at, including if you're looking at me, experiences on a regular basis, daily, a low grade at least, anger, anxiety, worry, fear, discontentment. Look around at everyone else in this room. Everyone here, in one way or another, at some time or another, is sleepless, wound too tight, sad, despairing, distracted, disturbed, That is the reality of our lives. There's no one here who doesn't feel that way today. You know that that's you. You are worried. You are jealous. You're mad at someone else for what they did to you. You're mad at God because of how your life is going. Every single one of us. And there are lots of reasons for that, aren't there? Some of those reasons are wrapped up in the suffering of what it means to live in a fallen world. Some of those reasons are wrapped up in what it means to be sinners. There's something wrong with us. Our hearts have remaining unbelief. But friends, one of the big reasons that we consistently experience one or more of these, almost constantly, is that we are looking through the wrong end of the telescope. When I was really young, I had one of those phases where I was really into looking at the stars. And my parents, being good parents, spent way too much money on a telescope that was used twice and then put in a closet and never used again. But as I used it, there was one of the things that I I noticed about it was that if I were to look just right through the lens, I could really see the stars. They became really clear, and I could start to make out different constellations, and I could see some of the planets, at least in in rudimentary form, and the, the better I got at using it, the clearer I could see. But then every now and then, every now and then, I would play around with it. And my curiosity would get the best of me, and instead of looking and being enamored at the stars, I would look through the telescope the opposite way. I wondered, what would happen if I looked the other way through the lens? If I turned the telescope around and looked that way, and what happens? If you've ever done this, you know. 
everything becomes smaller. Everything becomes harder to see. This is one of the reasons why you and I experience this almost constantly every day in one way or another. This low-grade, being disturbed in this low-grade way. Because we're looking through the telescope the wrong way. We're looking through the wrong end. It's very similar to what I was saying about the video game and how we interpret life. We're looking through it the wrong way. And when we do, everything is out of order. We are looking at life through the lens of earth, not through the lens of heaven. Imagine for a moment if you could have a glimpse just for a second at the true reality of hell. If you could somehow visit hell just for a moment, how long would it take for you to be overwhelmed by gratitude? How long would it take for you to be overwhelmed with a sense of, of evangelism that you would, you would want to fervently, without any fear, tell the world the truth about Jesus Christ and how he's mighty to save and he is glorious in power and he is the satisfier of every heart that belongs to him? How long would it take? Or what if you could take just a glimpse, just a second, and you could really look into heaven just for a moment? How long would you have to be in heaven and glimpse the glories there in order to drive out all of the distractions, all of the disruptions, all of those things that disturb us in our hearts here and now? A second, a millisecond, this is the problem. We're looking at our lives through the lens of earth. We're looking at God through the lens of our troubles rather than turning the telescope back around again so that we can see rightly. This is a challenge for us this morning. This is an application of our, of our truth that you and I would work with all of our might to expand our vocabulary of the gospel. You see, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about becoming more acclimated to the gospel, being able to talk about it more and more. Think about that telescope looking at the far-off planet. If you look out there, you might be able to see something very small, or like Josiah and I when we were at the, uh, at the observatory a couple of weeks ago, being able to see Saturn and just a few of the rings. But if we had a more powerful telescope, if we had more time, we could look even more carefully. We could make out more colors and more beauties. This is the Christian life. Do you want freedom from all of your low-grade, sometimes high-grade anger and anxiety and being disturbed about life? Then you must expand your view of the gospel. That's why we need to have our eyes focused on what is ultimate. We read about this earlier in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, now take this seriously, hear it, really chew on this. What does this mean for you? Keep seeking the things that are above. Keep seeking the things that are above. Isn't this the, the great challenge of our lives? Isn't this one of the big reasons why we struggle so much? is we stop seeking those things. We stop staring into space 
and we start staring down at earth. We stare down at ourselves. But he says, keep seeking the things that are above. Why? That's where Christ is. He is seated at the right hand, the hand of power and righteousness, the right hand of God. And then he says it again, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. It's repeated over and over and over again because we just can't seem to get it. He goes on, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. That is our great hope. That's this moment. That's what it means that Jesus will preserve his people. That's what it means that those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. How do you set your mind on things above? Here in a nutshell is how you do it. You settle and keep your mind on the good news of Jesus Christ so that you can understand more, and if it were possible, all that it means. It means that every time the world tries to distract you to think about something else, or there's this conflict, or there's this disappointment, or there's this hardship, that you continue in the midst of them to refocus back on the good news of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Let me ask you this question. How long could you talk about the gospel? I'm talking about in one long stretch. How long, if you had a listener willing to sit, how long could they sit there and you could keep talking about the gospel in different ways, in different pictures, with different verses, in different stories, in different experiences? How long could you talk about the gospel? Try it. Find someone, maybe someone sitting next to you. Make a time, you might live together, be friends, find a time to meet up and let one of you just go and see how long can you talk about the gospel. I think that you, like me, would find that compared to what I would like, it's not very long. I run out of gospel things to say much sooner than I should. And that's my problem. My gospel vocabulary is not broad enough. I don't know enough about the gospel. I don't know enough about Christ. I don't know my Bible well enough. I don't know how to think in these rich gospel pictures and verses and experiences and stories. And that's what I need. That's what you need. So this is our challenge application of the text is to work with all of your might to give God his due and with all of your might to expand your gospel vocabulary. Just see how long you can go. And then after that, try to go farther. That is what it means. Friends, listen. That is what it means to set your mind on things above. It means that you and I become more and more enamored with the realities of heaven, 
more and more disciplined to look through the right end of the telescope and to keep on looking, to keep on hearing. That's what it means to set our mind on the things above. If you're with us this morning or you're on the live stream, this begins by coming to faith in Christ. It becomes at the very entry level of knowing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world who lived, died, and rose again for sinners like us, and that he is welcoming at this time, but not forever, he is welcoming all different kinds of people around the world to come into his covenant family and know him, and then to teach them day after day after day, expanding their view of this good news of what he's done for us. And so we, we encourage everyone who's listening, come to Christ today while there's time. And if you need help with that, please reach out to someone. Don't wait. There's nothing more important. We'd love to talk more about this. And then for the rest of us who know Christ, what do we need to do? We need to talk more about this. We need to think more about Jesus. We need to know more about him and what he's done for us. We need a bigger and better gospel to help us in the midst of the day-to-day reality of life in a fallen world as fallen people, but people who have this hope. Let me invite you to stand with me this morning as we pray together. We always want to pray that God would take the truth that we hear on Sunday morning from his word and apply it to our lives. We need this to become part of our lives. We need our minds to be set upon the things above, and we need God to help us. So let's ask him to help us now. Father, please help us. We need you. We look into our own hearts and minds and lives, and we see so many good things, so many blessings that you have given to us, and yet still such a mess. We are a mess, but we have hope. We have hope that you love us. You love us in the midst of our mess. You're not afraid of our mess. Our mess is no match for you, let alone any enemies in the world. And so we pray, God, that you would help us. We need to know you more. We need to be more excited about you. We need to to have a, a better sense of what you have done for us. We need a clearer vision of who you are and what you're like and what you're doing in our lives. Please, 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 God, help us. We pray that you would pour out on us anew your grace and that you would work by your Holy Spirit in the good news to change us and to strengthen us and to open up our sight, open up our ears, help us to understand and to see you more, to know you more. And we pray that would have a real impact on our daily living. We do not want to be angry. We do not want to be anxious and worried and fretful all the time, but we are. So God, we need you. Please help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.